You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 8th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up, Presidents Biden and Trump hold last-minute rallies ahead of crucial U.S. midterm elections today. The destruction of our country and save the American dream. And this Tuesday, you must go out and vote Republican in this giant red wave. As diplomatic relations strain between Stockholm and Ankara over NATO membership, we'll be looking at whether animal diplomacy could help smooth things over. Plus the latest from COP27 in Egypt, where the UN Secretary General says humanity has a simple choice, cooperate or perish. And of course, we'll have the papers and the latest tech news. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. But first, a look at what else is happening in the news. A senior advisor to the Ukrainian president says Kyiv is open to talks with Russia's future leader, but not with Vladimir Putin. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has warned China is playing aggressive games to undermine democratic institutions. And UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is expected to announce a major natural gas deal with the United States after the COP27 climate change summit. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, with control of both the House and Senate on the line in the US midterm elections today, President Biden was forced into holding a rally in Maryland last night, normally a Democratic stronghold. Meanwhile, former President Trump held a rally in Ohio and teased using the possible momentum from Republican victories to launch his 2024 election bid. Well, I'm pleased to say I'm joined now by Natasha Lindstedt, Professor of Government at the University of Essex. Uh, Professor, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what does the latest polling indicate about how today is going to go for both parties? The latest polling seems to indicate that the Republicans are going to win the House. Uh, We don't know by how much, but they only need to flip five seats to do so. And there are 40 seats that are really competitive. And so it seems likely that they're going to take the House. Now, as far as the Senate is concerned, this is more of a toss up, but I think it might lean Republican. There are really, really close races in the Senate seats in in Georgia in Arizona, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania, uh, possibly even in Wisconsin. But everything will have to go right for the Democrats to hold on to the Senate. But there are bigger and more important races on, on in this particular midterm because there's some governor races where the Republican candidates, uh, if they win, they claim that they won't accept uh a a victory for the Democrats in future elections. Uh, So there's a lot at stake, but it looks like the Republicans are likely to take both both houses in Congress. And and, and it's it's really unclear what's going to happen with these very tight governor races. Mm. And a lot of issues at play. Democrats have campaigned on things like abortion and voting rights, whereas Republicans have gone hard on inflation and crime. What do you think will be the biggest deciders for voters heading to the ballot today? 
Well, the big issue is the economy. Almost 80 percent of Americans, uh, registered voters, I should say, say that the economy is the most important to them. And that's 92 percent for Republicans and 65 percent for Democrats. After that, there's a lot of uh, different views, depending on whether or not you're a Democrat or a Republican. There are as many as 70 percent that say the state of democracy is really important to them, but for different reasons. And, and then you have, you know, the Democrats saying 61 percent energy. Sorry, uh, it, it's up to somewhere around 68 percent say that climate change is really important for the Democrats, whereas for the Republicans, that's only nine percent. The Republicans care more about things like crime and immigration. Uh, and the Democrats just have other priorities. Uh, there's been an increase in the amount of Democrats that think abortion is really important. Uh, but at the end of the day, the economy is the thing that everybody seems to agree upon. And, and that's why the Democrats are really struggling, because they've had a difficult time controlling the narrative that the economy is not their fault, uh, that it has to do with supply chain issues. Uh, and they haven't been able to solve the problem of really, really high consumer prices. Um, a few weeks ago, Joe Biden looked like he was on a bit of an upward trajectory. He had passed, you know, big infrastructure bills. He'd done things like write off student college debts. He was talking about legalizing marijuana, excusing past convictions. So where did it go wrong for him in this campaign? And how is it going to affect the rest of his presidency if he loses both houses? So he started off really well uh, right when he was elected. And then sometime around August, things started to fall apart with the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And then it's kind of been up and down since then, but he's never really had a majority in terms of his approval rating. And so he'll have a little bit of a win uh, and then it starts to dip again. He's been punished quite a bit by the public's overall dissatisfaction dissatisfaction with the economy and, and just with Congress and, and the paralysis in Congress. So if things start to go better for him with the uh, Congress able to get things done, with their, with their being able to just be a little bit more efficient and, and effective, then that will improve his standings. But he's hampered quite a bit by the state of the global economy, how that affects the U.S. economy. And the Democrats' complete inability to, to sell to the American public whose fault this is and what they're doing about it. So his chances are really affected by things, some things that are outside of his control and other things that the Democrats need to be much more effective at. Now, the big elephant in the room, of course, is that Trump is likely to run and, and Trump is an incredibly polarizing candidate. And it will be difficult for Trump to win because he's so polarizing, because there are some, you know, even, you know, moderates and Republicans that are just never Trumpers. Uh, and that's basically what the last election was about, is who do you dislike less or more? Uh, and so that's that X factor that will be hard to, to mm. decipher. Yeah. And turning to Trump, he always likes to claim the spotlight. But how key has he been in this election cycle? And if his back candidates do well, how much is that going to help him? Trump has just never gone away. We we thought that after 2020 that he might go and retire in Mar-a-Lago, but that wasn't even close to being the case. He's remained in the news. He's been campaigning. He's been flirting with uh announcing that he's going to run. And, and now we know that's happening pretty soon. He basically controls the Republican Party. Uh, they have uh, 
I mean, the Republicans are, are basically afraid of saying anything against him. So you, you have people that are, are critical of, of some things that he's done, particularly January 6th, but then they're afraid to say that they, they wouldn't support him. So he is the Republican Party. He really, really affects uh, the entire campaign. And Democrats in the past have tried not to mention him. And now I think they know that they can't can't avoid that. And looking forward to 2024, you mentioned the governor races could have an impact on the integrity of the election. But I mean, is there also going to be a lot of pressure if the Democrats do poorly on Joe Biden to simply maybe pass the baton on? Um, and, and how soon do you think we could get that announcement from Trump that he's going to run? I think Trump will announce that he's going to run right after the midterms. And that's in, in order to basically be campaigning right away as soon as possible. He he needs a distraction from all of his legal issues that are going on. There's just countless lawsuits against him. As far as Biden is concerned, Biden has made it clear that he's going to run again. And that even though, you know, he's going to be almost 80, he's not ready to pass on the baton anytime soon. And, and it's been interesting because many thought that they were grooming uh, Kamala Harris, his vice president, to eventually run. And she hasn't been that much in the spotlight. We haven't seen that much of her. She she hasn't been put forward by the administration very much. So it seems to be all on Biden's shoulders. And we don't have any other Democratic candidates uh, that at least been vocal about their desires to run. So I really see this to be a contest uh, between Trump and Biden in the end. Uh, and, and it's going to be just a repeat of, of 2020. And you mentioned, you know, Trump wanting to run early to distract from his legal woes. It will be, you know, incredibly early, two years of campaigning, really. Is that simply a move as well to knock out any challenges like Ron DeSantis? Yes, definitely. And and DeSantis, which is the, the governor of Florida, um, poses the biggest challenge to Trump. And I don't see any other candidate that would pose any kind of challenge to Trump. Uh, DeSantis has modeled himself after Trump, but distanced himself slightly. Uh, he actually received very positive re- reviews for the way he handled Hurricane Ian. Uh, he cooperated with Biden on her, on providing support for, for Floridians. Uh, and he sees himself as the you know, the future of the Republican Party. And I think that primary battle could get pretty vicious, pretty ugly, as previous uh, Republican primary battles have been in in anything, honestly, involving Trump, because he makes things so dirty uh, in in terms of his campaign style. Uh, So we see Trump wants to get ahead of things early. Uh, It's not just about the distraction. I think he also just absolutely loves campaigning. He loves the attention. uh, And he wants to assert himself as, you know, pretty much the king of the Republican Party. Mm. Professor Natasha Linstead, thank you very much for joining us here on The Globalist. Now, as we were just discussing, Republicans are widely expected to gain control of at least one of the two houses of Congress. To unpack the stakes in a rather confounding election cycle, Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak filed this report. Until this past month, it had been over a decade since I had last properly covered an election in the United States attended rallies, soaked up the atmosphere. And while every American election has had its quirks over the years, I have to say this is one of the stranger elections I've ever been a part of as a journalist and observer. 
On the one hand, there's the sense that this is among the most important elections of this generation. Candidates on both sides of the aisle will tell you repeatedly in television ads and at campaign rallies, for wildly different reasons of course, that the stakes are impossibly high. On the other hand, it's also clear that passion among voters isn't quite there this time around, at least not as much as in the 2020 presidential elections or even the last midterms in 2018. People are angry, yes. They're worried about where this country is headed, but they're also tired, especially ordinary Americans and independents who are sort of caught between the passions of the extremes. The issues that are dominating this election are also confounding. This is the first election since Donald Trump's false allegations of fraud and the January 6th, 2021 insurrection on Capitol Hill. You would think that such threats to democracy itself would be top of people's minds. But instead, that old American adage, it's the economy, stupid, still rings true. Even in an election where democracy itself could very well be on the line. The threat of an economic recession and high inflation have prompted voters to focus more on bread and butter issues terrain that favors Republicans. But even below the economy, there are a number of competing interests. Republican-leaning voters will bring up crime and immigration and education. Democratic-leaning voters will bring up abortion and climate change. The future of democracy itself, in other words, has been added to a laundry list of interests competing for the minds of voters, rather than rising above it. Not only that, but democracy has become its own fixture within America's extremely polarized and partisan electorate. Ask voters which party is better equipped to deal with the threat to American democracy, and the response is pretty evenly divided. In other words, almost as many voters trust Republicans to be the standard bearers of democracy as they do Democrats. This despite the fact that Donald Trump has no basis for his continued claims that the last presidential election was stolen from him. That his supporters stormed the US Capitol after all legal avenues for overturning the election result had been exhausted. And that a majority of Republican candidates for office in these midterms continue to either deny or question the 2020 election. All of this feels as if the United States is knowingly tumbling into a full-blown crisis of democracy, that proverbial frog that sits in slowly boiling water. There's a win-at-all-costs mentality that has gone into overdrive over these last few years. These midterms could see a number of Republican candidates elected, including as state election overseers, who not only question the 2020 results, but who openly refuse to say that they will certify future elections won by their opponents. But Democrats have been playing a dangerous game as well. For example, by quietly financing some of those very same election-denying candidates in Republican primaries, with the hopes that they could be more easily beaten than moderate conservatives this November. Now that the tide has turned and economic concerns are dominating, it's a strategy that has very likely backfired. There have long been grumblings about the quirkier aspects of the American voting system like the Electoral College, partisan political primaries, and congressional redistricting. Before 2020, though, there had been precious little question about the end results of elections from either party. Now, Donald Trump's false allegations of voter fraud, coupled with a pandemic that shifted voter habits, 
with more Democrats now voting by mail and Republicans still mostly voting in person, has seriously eroded trust among the public as well, to a point where there is a real danger that broad portions of the US electorate will no longer believe in the outcome of future elections, the very bedrock of a democracy. If there is a positive in this midterm cycle, it lies with the poll workers and election officials themselves. The ultimate irony about America's recent case of democratic backsliding is that it's happening in a place where elections have a strong track record of being free and fair. This too is in danger, as the multiple reported threats that poll workers and election officials have faced could dissuade good people from applying to work elections in future. If that happens, then the lack of trust in American democracy will enter a sort of self-reinforcing downward spiral. Stopping it in its tracks will take American voters to recognize the right signs and vote like their democracy depends on it. That was Monocle's Washington correspondent. Well, it is 7.17 here in London and 8.17 in Stockholm. Sweden's new Prime Minister, Ulf Christensen, is expected to visit Ankara today for talks with his Turkish counterpart, Recep Erdogan. The trip is part of the government's new charm offensive to persuade Turkey into approving his country's application to join NATO. But will it work? I'm joined by Nicholas Aylott, an associate professor at Sonderton University in Stockholm. Nicholas, thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you just remind listeners why this impasse has flared up and what the main stumbling blocks are? Well, uh, Sweden uh, has for uh, a couple of hundred years or so been a non-aligned country. Uh, And during that period, it's been uh, more more pronounced than that. It's been been neutral. Um, But everything changed very dramatically and very, very suddenly uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In, um, in February. Uh, first, uh, the Swedish government was rather cautious, but then it seemed very quickly that the Finnish government had uh, set its sights on applying for uh, NATO membership. And the Swedish government quickly decided that it could do nothing else except uh, emulate the Finnish government. So that, 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 that's what happened. The, the problem was uh, that um, the Swedish government at the time uh, had a very precarious uh, majority in parliament, which was dependent on uh, an independent member of parliament uh, who had a background in um, uh, Kurdish uh, militants in um, Syria. Uh, And she could exact pretty uh, large concessions from the government at the time there to try to um, uh, express support for those, uh, that that militia in, uh, in, in Syria. And that naturally raised a very big block uh, in relations with Turkey when Sweden wanted to join NATO. And is this new Conservative government tackling the problem any differently? Well, for a start, it's not the previous government. And uh, that, that is perhaps the most important uh, difference of all. Uh, it, it doesn't have that uh, extremely vulnerable, uh, extreme vulnerability in relation to a, a lone member of parliament that the previous one did. Uh, that independent uh, member is now no longer a member of parliament and, in, and the government has a, uh, uh, its own majority. And that, I think, makes a big symbolic difference. Uh, the uh, the foreign minister at the weekend explicitly distanced the new government uh, from this uh, Kurdish militia in Syria and its political 
representatives. And so that, that's a big, a big step in itself. Um, he also uh, commented about um, Turkey being a democracy, which has, uh, which was presumably designed to send positive signals towards uh, towards Ankara as well. And now we have the visit of the new prime minister to uh, to Turkey today. So all these are, are rather symbolic uh, steps that the Swedish government is taking in order to try to uh, repair relations with Turkey. And will all these shifts in position work? And how is it going down domestically in Sweden? It's it's big news in Sweden. I mean, it's 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 the headline story today in in uh, on the radio news, for example. But there isn't a sense of crisis. Um, I think that's partly to do with the fact with with the way the war has gone. Um, uh, if if Russia was ever seen as a as a real threat to Sweden, that that threat seems to have dissipated now. Uh, with the, the progression of the war in, in Ukraine. So the sense of urgency um, has has sort of uh, weakened as well. And then from as far as the Turkish side is concerned, <clears throat> there's uh, there's an appreciation that um, uh, Turkey is is using its its leverage in the situation in in order to uh, exact certain concessions from Sweden. There's also an awareness of internal Turkish politics and that there's a presidential election in in the spring and i think um i think the swedish government is prepared to to make these symbolic concessions uh it may uh, well go further on things like exporting arms to turkey as well um but uh, i think it's prepared to be fairly patient as well and how much pressure is turkey coming under from other nato members particularly the us to get this done yeah that's uh, more difficult for me to to judge of course um i would expect that uh, america uh, which of course is the decisive member of NATO, is putting uh, certain pressure on Turkey in order to let this through. But I, I think the urgency has rather has rather drained away from the situation, as I say, mainly because of the way that the the war has gone. And uh, although Sweden has made its choice now, and it's 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 inconceivable, I think that uh, that uh, certainly the current government and even even any any likely future government would would change its mind and, and withdraw from the process. I think that 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 path has now been has now been chosen. I think um, that all, all sides, Turkey, uh, Sweden, even Finland, and maybe even America are prepared to uh, to let this take a little bit of time and, and let everybody, including the Turkish government, save a, a reasonable amount of face uh, and get something of what it wants from from the deal. And I mean, Erdogan loves being on the world stage and seeing himself as a main player. Is he still enjoying this? And is there any kind of suspicion that he's maybe trying by delaying things to carry a bit of favour with Putin as well? Again, that's more difficult uh, for me to judge here from 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 Stockholm. But uh, I can imagine there's a certain uh, amount of uh, of that going on. I mean, he clearly likes to uh, to be at the centre of things. He likes. Uh, to exploit the fact that he has reasonable relations with pretty much everybody involved in the in the current crisis, and uh, he's looking to to exact as much as he he, he can from that. But there is, I think, a, a great, obviously, a great deal of sensitivity in Turkey about uh, the way that um, Sweden has previously been uh, very accommodating to. Uh, to 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 people who are very critical of the current Turkish regime, and not just uh, Kurdish forces either, or K- Kurdish um, representatives, uh, but also um, people from 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 other other critical elements of uh, Turkish society, and uh, 
that has been a fairly constant irritant to Turkey. That that's mm-hmm. that's pretty clear. And Turkey has has actually acted uh, to try to uh, to try to um, combat these forces within Sweden itself on occasion. And well, I think anything that can that can serve to to, to further that Turkish aim is going to be something the government there will try to try to undertake. Nicholas Alot, thank you very much. This is the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, COP27, the UN Climate Change Summit this year located in Egypt, continues today with world leaders there as well as the presence of royalty and more than 100 heads of state or governments. Carlotta Rabello is Monocle 24's senior producer. Uh, Carlotta, good to have you on the show. How has the conference been so far? Good morning. Uh, it's been uh, quite uh, an optimistic start, I would say, but uh, what else could you expect on the first day? As you mentioned, there's thousands of people gathering here and a real um, change of tone. Um, whereas last year in Glasgow at COP26, there was this real sense of changes happening. Uh, we are going to commit to uh, these uh, groundbreaking um, uh, parameters and goals. Uh, this under a more realistic approach, which in a way is quite refreshing you know um, they have from the very first day yesterday admitted that COP26 did not deliver exactly what they were hoping while it delivered a lot not exactly what everyone had been hoping for uh, and that COP27 is no longer about you know talking about uh, what is the agreement that can be reached and what are the theoretical goals but actually let's move to action and how we can get things done quickly. And what is the mood like amongst attendees in Sharm el-Sheikh? You know, you mentioned there's a bit more kind of optimism, but the world has changed so significantly in the past year. Does the challenge seem even bigger now? It does. And one of the things that yesterday uh, was highlighted in a lot of the leaders' speeches, including from the very first one from uh, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, but then from uh, several of the others that followed, was to acknowledge as well that uh, sadly due to the ongoing war by Russia in Ukraine, uh, the climate emergency has taken um, you know, a background role and that it's important that the world does not forget uh, the you know, addressing climate change, uh, the more time it goes by without, with inaction, uh, the worse it becomes and uh, the more irreversible uh, territory we approach. Now, it has to be said as well that, um, as I mentioned, people are being realistic on the ground. But the first 48 hours, I've already come out with a, a few announcements. Uh, the UN announced a 3.1 billion US dollars program yesterday, uh, which is an early warning for all uh, executive action plan. Now, what this does is to um, uh, put in place a mechanism, both in terms of funding and in, poor, in, t- in 
terms of uh, equipment and um, uh, protocol uh, so that if a natural disaster or what they call a hazardous a natural event is about to occur, particularly in emerging economies, there's this system in place to immediately give this warning to those nations or regions uh, so that people can be evacuated and measures can be put in place. They estimate that just by giving 24-hour warning, uh, up to 30% of the damage and inevitable deaths can be prevented. So this is a huge step. And today is the World Leaders Summit. Who is there? And crucially, who isn't? Because it seems a bit silly to have arranged at the same time as US midterms that automatically knocks out the US president, but also, of course, China not represented once again. Yes, uh, of course, and uh, uh, also uh, Russia uh, very much uh, absent from uh, the stage, and uh, they're meant to have a pavilion here, and I did try to find it yesterday, and I couldn't. Admittedly, this is quite big. I will try again today, uh, but maybe it wasn't just me missing it. Um, uh, a lot of Today is the day that we move on the conversation in terms of world leaders. So yesterday we heard from a lot of uh, uh, presidents and royalty, and today we're going to be hearing from elected uh, heads of state. So we're talking about prime ministers. And in some cases, when prime ministers uh, couldn't come uh, here, we'll uh, have vice presidents uh, in representation. One of them, for example, is the vice president of Angola, uh, who's here quite significant, the first woman ever to hold the post. Angola, as we know, a very rich oil nation in that regard. Uh, so the fact as well that it's happening here in uh, the African continent is putting uh, uh, additional pressure to uh, these uh, nations in the region that have been oil reliant for so long. Um, and very much everyone else basically saying that if you can't get your act together while these talks are happening here, uh, when can you? Uh, around 40,000 people are here. It's the biggest ever event uh, of this magnitude that has ever happened in the African continent. They were announcing that yesterday. So uh, it's, it's a big deal. Mm. Uh, and finally, just briefly, poorer countries are pushing for financial compensation from rich countries responsible for historical emissions. How likely is this to be successfully addressed at the conference? Um, so for now, the only indication that we have, uh, not a direct compensation, but that richer countries will hopefully uh, contribute more in terms of the percentage that each nation contributes. That's the main aim that people have here. That's what these high level negotiations are going to be focusing on. Uh, now, to the, I mentioned that this summit happening here in Africa is quite significant. And today is unofficial Africa Day as well here uh, at COP. And there's a few events, including with the, prime, uh, with the president of, uh, of Mozambique um, in just an hour or so, um, where he's going to be talking as well about that and the need uh, to even out the scales. Uh, so it's a conversation that is happening. It's refreshing to see it happening on the ground and not just in these uh, bilateral meetings in uh, rooms closed mm. off to the rest of the world. Uh, so we'll have to see how the next week develops. Uh, the Leader Summit ends today. So yesterday and today are the crucial days to take these steps. Carlotta Rebello, thank you. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. A senior advisor to the Ukrainian president says Kyiv has never refused to negotiate with Moscow and that Ukraine is open to talks with Russia's future leader, but not with Vladimir Putin. The comments follow reports the Biden administration was privately encouraging Ukraine's leaders to show openness to negotiation. 
Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says China is playing aggressive games to undermine democratic institutions. His comments follow reports Beijing actively interfered in Canada's federal elections. The allegations come amid intensifying concern about the scope of foreign intrusion in Canadian domestic politics. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is expected to announce a major natural gas deal with the United States after the COP27 climate change summit. Britain hopes America will promise about 10 billion cubic metres of liquefied natural gas over the coming year. Discussions about the deal are in their final stages. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Well, business travellers around the world are scrapping their usual one-day work-related trips in favour of taking much longer stays than before COVID-19. New industry data reveals the change in travel-related work has caused airlines to adjust their flight plans as environmental concerns, rising ticket prices, increased flight cancellations amid staff shortages and a boom in online video conferencing have played their part in changing the face of a single-day trip option as an industry standard. Joining me now to explain more is Paul Charles, CEO of the PC Agency, which provides expert travel insight to governments and travel brands. Paul, thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you just explain, uh, are there any other reasons for this big shift in the way people are travelling? Well, there are enormous changes going on across travel and aviation at the moment and the way we fly. Airlines have just had their most profitable summer for some time, for many of them actually even more profitable than before COVID. And what's happened is that that two-year lockdown period, obviously most airlines weren't flying during that period, most of us weren't flying at all. It's enabled not only the airlines, but us as consumers to reassess how we travel. And our habits have changed enormously so that perhaps we don't take as many trips, we're more environmentally conscious. And from a business perspective, we're thinking about whether we need to do short haul trips in one day at all, or replace that with video conferencing. And as a result, we're changing the length of our trips and we're changing how often we do them. Do you think that part of that change to going for more extended trips is simply because people, uh, you know, in the short term now, people haven't travelled much in the last two years, so they're wanting to enjoy it a bit more. Uh, And they're also changing the way, you know, people aren't commuting in and out of work as much anymore. They're kind of at a bit of a different pace to what they were pre-pandemic. So maybe they're just slowing down a bit. I think that's a really good point. There's definitely a different pace and they're reassessing the needs of whether they need to travel so much. Don't forget their budgets are under pressure as well, especially in the uh, technology sector. We're seeing job cuts at the likes of Twitter, uh, Meta. And as a result of those job cuts, you're seeing fewer senior executives fly. So airlines are particularly worried at the moment about technology firms cutting their budgets and they're big spenders on business travel. But for us as consumers, whether we're, say, running a small or medium-sized business or running something much larger, we're essentially questioning whether we need to travel as much and for how long. And we're looking for value at the moment, especially during the cost of living crisis. And that value includes looking at whether we take a longer trip less often. So instead of going for one day to Paris for a meeting, we might think, well, I'll go for a week, I'll spend two days in Paris and maybe three or four days 
having a holiday in the, in, in the south of France at the same time and going by train across France. So we're reassessing the patterns that we used to have pre-COVID. And in terms of airlines and hotels and airports, you know, used to heavy volumes of business travel, particularly, you know, places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, London, um, how can they adapt to this new pattern? Well, of course, many airports have failed to adapt. We've seen over the summer and into September, October time, particularly when there were lots of people traveling, that Heathrow and Amsterdam Schiphol couldn't cope with the volume And they couldn't cope because they haven't been able to recruit enough workers and enough staff to cope with the demand. The demand is there. It may seem amazing during the cost of living period we're uh, going through at the moment, but the demand to travel is still very much there. And if you ask airlines about their forward bookings, they are very much still seeing strong bookings all the way through till March, April of next year, which is unheard of. Normally, at this time of the year, they're worried about the scarcity of bookings during the oncoming winter period. So they know the demand is there. The airlines, sorry, the airports are facing the issue now of staffing up. They simply can't find enough people to work in the airports to meet the demand that's being seen. And that, of course, means they're going to have to raise their wages and salaries to attract better people into those airports. And that's the challenge facing the airports. They're seeing the demand. They can't pay high enough to attract the best workers. Paul Charles, thank you very much. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. It's 8.37 in Zurich and 7.37 here in London. Let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Terry Siasny, an author and political journalist. Hi, Terry. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. What's on the pages today? Well, OK, it's it's a a real mixture, as you'd expect. Obviously, there's a lot of coverage of uh, the climate conference in Egypt uh, and the US midterms and so forth. Um, But one of the things that is on many of the UK front pages, um, looking here, we've got the Times here, uh, Emmanuel Macron and Rishi Sunak at their first meeting, kind of embracing each other. Nice, nice hug there. And the front page of the Telegraph, uh, they are they're shaking hands, looking remarkably similar in their in their navy sh- suits and their shiny same heights, sh- yeah, well. same height, similar height, similar outfits. You know, <laughs> uh, similar haircuts, even possibly. But anyway, the substance of this meeting is not really for them to compare nice suits. Um, it is uh, interesting how they their first meeting seems to have gone pretty well. There is a general consensus here, um, and they, one of the big issues that came up uh, that they were discussing was uh, migration. Now, a slight difference of view according to which paper you read about quite how well uh, this went. So, uh, according to the Times here, it says uh, British will help French migrant patrols. Britain and France are in the final stages of agreeing a deal worth about £80 million that will lead to UK immigration officials being stationed in French control rooms for the first time. Uh, the Guardian, however, in its reports basically says it says that they failed uh, to reach an agreement, which I suppose is a more negative, slightly more negative uh, spin on the same thing in that, they, you know, they got on well, they got quite far, but they haven't actually, you know, signed any or agreed any uh, deal yet. Um, And the reason, obviously, this is important um, politically is 
uh, because of the situation in the channel, because of the situation to do with uh, people travelling across the channel in small boats and talking about, you know, trying to combat this between Britain and France, really, rather than sort of having a row about it as has been happening recently. And I'm looking at Rishi Sunak's Twitter feed, actually, because I saw this yesterday and he's posted a tweet with a picture of him and Macron. He said, friends with a hand-holding emoji, partners with a globe, and then allies with the two flags together. Great to meet Emmanuel Macron. It's a bit of a step change, isn't it, from Liz Trust, who was asked in their campaign, Emmanuel Macron, friend or foe? And she said to be determined, which <laughs> which caused well, a bit of a ruckus. Well, and that does seem to have had an actual impact on the actual discussions about what to do about migrants in the channel. You know, they seem to have been discussing this at a high level amongst officials and then uh, when Liz Truss is supposed to, you know, said this during the leadership campaign uh, and then said you know, oh, the jury's still out on whether they're a friend or foe, uh, the French not surprisingly took a bit, took a bit of offence at that and so that stalled uh, any progress on this. Um, but the interesting thing that seems to be being discussed now is this idea that you would put British officials working closely with French uh, patrol uh, on the French side of the channel, a bit similar to, you know, when you go to France and you see British officials, you know, checking your passports on the, on the French side, say, in the in the Gare du Nord, so that they would work closely together. And this idea that, you know, that by doing this, there would be more intelligence about uh, people, people travelling across the channel and that, you know, might hopefully be able to stop the trade and stop the, the traffickers and make it less worthwhile for people to try and traffic people ac- across uh, the channel. Mm. And just on Sunak, I mean, he was seemingly reluctant reluctant to go to this conference, which seems, I think, a bit strange, given he's a new leader. It's a chance to have these kind of bilateral big meetings, make himself seen on the world stage. But he also had an unexpected uh, guest in the form of one of his predecessors as well, didn't he? Well, yes, just looking here in the, in the Daily Telegraph, and um, we can see we can see the unexpected guest, which was uh, Boris Johnson, uh, the last prime minister uh, but one, who was also invited uh, to the conference, I think, as a guest of the hosts, Egypt, because, of course, he'd been prime minister when when Britain hosted uh, the conference in Glasgow. And I think, yes, you, you didn't necessarily want Boris Johnson, who gave a speech yesterday uh, talking about... I mean, he was talking, he was quite helpful in, in that way. He was talking about the importance of, of net zero, the importance of holding to you know the, the agreements that have been made in Glasgow. But it would have looked a bit strange to have you know a former British Prime Minister there and a former chairman of COP and, and not the current one. So I think you know, uh, Rishi Sunak seems to have got quite a lot out of this in terms of... The meetings that he's had. I mean, he was talking to Macron as well about things like energy security and about Ukraine, and then had other meetings as well in mm. in the sidelines, you know, with Italy as well. So I think you know, a, a good day's work, pretty much. And you mentioned Italy there. There's a story in the FT and La Repubblica about how they're handling the migrant crisis. Well, yes, I thought this is interesting, given you know how much the British press, in particular, looks at uh, the situation, you know, in the in the Channel crossing. Um, but in Italy, there is a, a really big uh, and severe situation going on to do with the Mediterranean crossings that of course have been going on for a long time Um, and the Financial Times here reports here that says Italy cracks down on charities landing rescued sea migrants um, and says that Italy's new right-wing government is trying to stop European charities landing migrants rescued from the Mediterranean at the country's ports in a first test of its campaign pledge to curb illegal migration from North Africa and this has left 
four ships um, stuck for up to 14 days uh, at Ita- various Italian ports and they uh, they do not want to allow them to land but some people have been allowed to come ashore um, for humanitarian reasons. Uh, a Berlin-based ship SOS Humanity put 144 children, pregnant women and so forth uh, ashore but this is this policy has been strongly criticised by, by the EU and by Germany amongst others um, and the Italian paper La Repubblica has got on its web site's kind of got a live blog currently telling you exactly uh, what's happened so one of these ships the rise above has arrived in port in, in Reggio Calabria in the south of Italy uh, saying two migrants from the the ship Geobarents who uh, had jumped off the ship they jumped off the stern of the ship and then they didn't want to be moved they spent the night uh, on a dock uh, next to the ship in port didn't want to be taken anywhere else um, so obviously there's you know a big humanitarian crisis going on there and a, a huge disagreement with the government about uh, what they should do and people People urging the Italian government, saying, well, you need to obey uh, the laws of the sea and saying that this is inhumane to leave people stranded at sea for, for mm. 14 days. Um, and just finally and, and briefly, uh, British prime ministers, they're not like uh, US presidents. They don't get to pardon people, but they do get to hand out some gongs when they go. The Times says that it's got Boris Johnson's gongs list. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So, well, Boris Johnson, in leaving, got to make base not one but two uh, lists of of people that he wanted to give peerages to. He's already announced uh, some political working peers. But this one seems to be uh, interesting because he has, again, made some uh, controversial, possibly, decisions about who he's appointed. But also he's trying to make four of his MP supporters, Lords, put them in the House of Lords. Uh, Normally that would cause a by-election instantly, uh, which is something the government probably doesn't want in many of these cases. So people like Nadine Dorries, the former Culture Secretary... Alok Sharma, the outgoing president of COP26, being offered peerages. But apparently they have agreed not to take them until the time of the next election. So as When Boris yet. Johnson also probably needs a new seat as well. Well, his is under that, that is the interesting question, mm. you know, whether he will be looking at, at Reading or Mid-Bedfordshire, <laughs> interestingly. Um, and, but whether this is something you can actually do, I think, is a question that people say, you know, you're not normally allowed to say, well your promise of a peerage in, in two years' time um, and whether that's something that will go through. And also mm. he is supposed to have offered peerages to two um, young former Downing Street uh, aides, one of whom is about 30 and one in their late 20s who would become some of the youngest peers. Well, it's not like Boris Johnson never acknowledges the uh, rules much anyway. <laughs> well, Terry Stiasny, thank you for joining us. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, it's now time to examine some of the new technology goodies that have just come on the market with our very own Inspector Gadget, um, David Phelan. David, thank you for joining us. Everyone, of course, looking ahead now to next month, to Christmas, thinking about presents for loved ones, big sort of quarter for the technology sector. Absolutely. So what are the items that I think are going to be on top of people's Christmas lists? Well, uh, I think it's been a very interesting year. Apple has had a very successful time. They've stopped uh, releasing any new hardware. Um, But they only finished that last Friday, actually, with the new Apple TV uh, streaming box. 
course, they've also had uh, new iPhones, new iPad, iPad Pro, and uh, it's only just beginning to to calm down. Uh, And I think this is the time of year when certainly other companies are opening up, and uh, one of them uh, is uh, Huawei, the Chinese uh, phone brand, who... um, have always been able to make very stylish-looking and very brilliant camera phones. And this is the latest one, which is just coming out now. It's called the Huawei Mate Forty Pro, Mate 50 Pro, I beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. And um, you can see on the back it's got f- three cameras and a flash. And one of those cameras is quite groundbreaking. It's the first time that you've had an aperture um, variable uh, camera on a phone. Um, obviously, this is something that's very standard on an SLR, and it's it it just takes Huawei's innovation that step further. And it's we're one step closer to leaving our SLRs at home, maybe. And it means that you can change the depth of field in a whole different way uh, from the way you can on any other uh, phone. The problem is that because of the sanctions that were imposed on uh, Chinese brands, especially Huawei, uh, is that they can't use full Google mobile services. It's an Android phone, essentially. Um, and that means you can't get Gmail, you can't get Play Store and or Google Maps. Now, they have a very excellent alternative to Google Maps called Petal Maps, but it does mean that there are a lot of apps that are, that are missing. And so, you know, there are those issues there. How do they compete with the likes of Apple? Is it price point? Is that what they have to go for? Uh, they certainly do uh, have a lower price point. Um, the sanctions play into that as well because they're not allowed to use 5G chips in them. So this, although it has one of the latest chips on the market, a Qualcomm chip, it's only allowed to use a 4G chip in it. And that means that that does bring the price down uh, slowly. They are very good value and they're beautifully designed. But it's just that the way the sanctions have affected things that I think are problematic for the brand. Mm. Um, And turning to the next device, the Nothing Ear Stick. What is this? Yes, Nothing is a brand that was set up by Carl Pei, the co-founder of uh, the um, uh, OnePlus phones, and I'll show you. It's it's a Nothing Ear Stick. It comes in the shape of a stick, which you've uh, realised you can just spin it open. Yeah, and it's like as, a lipstick, basically. It, yeah, indeed, yes. And uh, w- when you twist it, um, the the case will open and lights will go on to tell you that it's ready to use. And then you pop out the little earbuds, which are extremely comfortable and very uh, so much so that you can wear them all day long and uh, they have very good um, audio quality. What they don't have uh, is active noise cancelling, which is obviously a big thing uh, in in ear buds. Uh, nothing has already made a pair that do, uh, and when they first uh, briefed me on this, they said, "Yes, these are the same price," which surprised me because uh, active noise cancelling is always seen as a premium feature. However, what they didn't tell me was that the premium pair have now gone up in price, so that uh, although these are £99 in the UK, uh, the, the 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 ones with premium uh, noise cancelling are now £149. So Still a good bit cheaper than the AirPods Pro. Absolutely, know. very much so. The, when, when, the first, when the nothing with uh, active noise cancelling came out, they were phenomenal value. Uh, they're still great value, but, but not as much. But they look great, and nothing is uh, like Huawei 
Huawei is very concerned with industrial design and make sure that everything that uh, it does uh, looks good. And that's certainly the case. Mm, it does look sleek. Um, and finally, I'm gonna we're going to talk now about Siri without trying to activate a laptop or phone or watch in this room. We're not going to use a particular phrase that I think everyone knows that you use to activate it, but Apple's going to change this. Yeah, it, it is always a problem talking about this. Um, I wonder if we could rechristen her just for a minute and imagine that Siri is called Maureen. And so the, 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 at the moment, everyone's familiar with saying, hey, Maureen, and your iPhone or iPad or Apple Watch or HomePod all spring into life. But yes, Apple is trying to change it so that you'll only have to say Maureen and well, obviously Siri. Um, and that sounds like a very simple thing. But actually, to get wake word recognition on two syllables instead of three, it's why Amazon has uh, three syllables, Alexa, or uh, Google has three syllables, hey Google, uh, is really quite a challenge. And it's interesting that Apple wants to, to try and do it. Personally, I think hey Maureen sounds a little bit more friendly than just saying Maureen. Um, but uh, it's it, it's obviously a, a Apple determined to prove that they can just uh, take things a little bit further in terms of smart home. And I mean, on reflection, do you think Apple thinks that maybe they, you know, they invented a name? They're not like uh, Amazon, where you know, m m parents of children called Alexa have subsequently really complained uh, about the name uh, being right. given. They invented a name, which, as far as I know, no one was ever called uh, Siri. Should they have actually come up with a name that was three syllables for this change? Well, uh, they bought a company called Siri and that that's where the name came from so uh. that it, it wasn't that they invented it um, and uh, it, it, it is a, a rare uh, name to say the least but yes I think I think they are hitting on it Amazon also has the option that you can call uh, Alexa by a different name like Ziggy and computer uh, so that you can avoid unless you've got a child called computer you can avoid um, problems at home well, David, thank you for joining us. That was Monocle's technology correspondent, David Phelan. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Well, it is 8.53 in Oslo and 16.53 in Seoul, where we head next. South Korea's former president, Moon Jae-in, says he plans to give up a pair of dogs, which was sent as a gift by the North Korean dictator, Kim Jong-un. The former leader's office says the decision is due to an objection from the office of his successor, Yoon Suk-yul. Joining me now from Oslo to discuss when creatures great and small get entwined in diplomacy is Halvard Lira, research professor at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. Halvard, thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you explain how does animal diplomacy actually work? First off, thanks for having me. Um, it works by um, some political leader typically uh, offering a gift of animals to some other political leader. That's our current setup. Now, beastly diplomacy, if you like, goes back millennia. It has taken many forms over the years. But over the last years, it's typically a leader-to-leader -leader, uh, gift of domestic animals. And can you give us some examples? We often think probably first of uh, Chinese pandas, but are there any other creatures? 
Yes, actually, there are a number of different ones. I mean, going back in history, horses, uh, camels, those kinds of things, useful animals were often given. And then exotic animals have been super popular, the elephants, giraffes, those kinds of things. Uh, during the Second World War, when the Australians tried to better relations with Britain, they tried send this, sending platypus uh, to, to Britain. The creatures had the unfortunate habit of dying, so that wasn't all successful. Um, in later days, it's typically been uh, dogs, been very popular. Uh, Vladimir Putin has been giving dogs away for, for most of his uh, tenure. Uh, the Bulgarian prime minister of the around 2010 gave away dogs. Uh, the Japanese foreign minister at the time gave away dogs. So really sort of puppies have been the, the uh, animal of choice over the last couple of decades. So is an animal's cuteness now a key consideration? Has it ever gone drastically wrong with one of these gifts? Yeah, cuteness is, is of course, um, easy to latch onto. We, we like animals that remind us of, of babies, I think. There's the, the puppies and the pandas. There are other sort of alternatives. In 1960, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, Prime Minister of the Soviet Union at the time, gave four sturgeons to Norway when he was visiting. And the um, Indonesian uh, Prime Minister, President Suharto, gave Komodo dragons to the German Chancellor Helmut Kohl in the 80s and 90s. Not neither of those animals are particularly cute, but I think cuteness sort of raises effects in us. We 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 sort of attach to those animals. So uh, for, for the current purposes, I think cuteness does matter. And what do we know about how these decisions get made? Is there always some ulterior motive? <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, often the the traditional way of doing it has been to si signal some sort of hierarchy, right? When the Sultan Harun al-Rashid, or the Caliph rather, uh, sent an elephant to Charles the Great in 800 uh, AT, it was quite clearly to signal some sort of superiority. Uh, otherwise, you can give away uh, animals as some, some form of, of submission. But in, in later days, I think it's more often there are two different ways this happens. One is a, a sort of uh, tit for tat. I give you a cute or nice or exotic animal, like a panda, uh, and you in me return you give me some sort of um, recognition. I think that it's fairly common to interpret the, the Chinese panda diplomacy as a way of, of um, seeking to obtain higher status in global politics. The second option, I think, is, is more of the sort of community building. Uh, I give you some animals to show you that we're friends. I don't necessarily expect to get animals back, but I just sort of expect this to sort of grease the wheels, if you like, of diplomatic interaction. And in this situation, is returning an animal diplomatic faux pas? Definitely. And when I first read the story, or read the the the, um, the headline rather, I was thinking this is a, a very strange way of escalating a conflict. Now, I, reading the story, of course, it seems like the likelihood is that the former president will return the animals to some other South Korean instance. And this is actually a gift of state, so it, so it has to go to the state rather than the president. But actually returning them to the country that gave them to you, that's a faux pas on the line of returning a Christmas gift that you don't want to the giver. Mm. Well, Halvard Lira from the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, thank you very much. That is all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer, Tom Webb and Emma Searle, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Nora Hole, with editing assistance from Sarah Nichol. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday London time. The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Thank you for tuning in.